Hi everyone, and welcome to SEDScast, Episode 2. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and joining me today as a co-host is Chad Cerruti. Our guest today is Will Palmerans. Will is the Vice President of Special Projects at Virgin Orbit, and he is the Chair of the SEDSUSA Board of Advisors. Will holds a Bachelor's Degree in Earth and Planetary Sciences from Harvard, and a Master's Degree in Space Studies from the International Space University. He has held a bunch of really cool jobs in his career and co-founded some amazing organizations, including the Brooke Owens Fellowship. We're going to talk about a bunch of those experiences today, including how Will became the first employee at Virgin Orbit and how Will has been involved in SEDS throughout the years. We are extremely excited to hear Will's stories and advice. Welcome to SEDScast, Episode 2 with Will Pomeranz. Joining us today is Will Palmerantz, who is at Virgin Orbit. Will, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, very much my pleasure to be here. So uh, I think a lot of people in SEDS know you either from Space Vision or from the different events you've done. You've been involved with SEDS for a long time. For people that don't know you, can you give a quick background on who you are, what you do? Sure. Well, uh, I'm a SEDS alum, most importantly, <laughs> uh, and uh, I've had the honor of being the chair of the board of advisors for SEDS for seven or eight years and counting now, uh, in addition to a trustee. Uh, of the endowment. SEDS had a huge impact on my career, and I've always really enjoyed uh, staying involved in the community and, and having a chance to, to give back and to meet some awesome young people like yourselves and all the other SEDS members. Um, outside of my SEDS role, I'm also vice president for special projects and employee number one at Virgin Orbit, uh, which is a small responsive launch company based in Southern California. Uh, I'm the co-founder of the Brooke Owens Fellowship, and uh, a couple other things as well. I'm a, a dad and a husband and a, a lifelong space nerd, I guess. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to get through a bunch of cool topics today because you've done a lot of really interesting stuff. You talked about uh, space nerd there. Can you give us uh, some background on to when you first got interested in space and how that happened? You know, I, I liked space as a little kid in the way that I think all little kids do. Um, but I wasn't obsessed with it and I never grew up wanting to work in the space industry. I, I think it's probably because um, when I was eight years old, that's when I started wearing glasses. And at least back at that time, that was enough to knock you out of being a NASA astronaut. And I, I think my little eight-year-old brain like, couldn't realize that there were other jobs in the space industry besides astronauts. So it just sort of seemed like a door that was closed to me. And I would pay attention if I saw it, but I wasn't actively really seeking out space stuff. Even though for you know part of my childhood, I lived in space cities. My family moved around a lot, but I lived in Houston, Texas for a couple of years. I lived in Orlando, Florida for a couple of years. Those are both cities with a big space presence where it's you know in the newspapers. And I had kids I went to school with whose parents worked for NASA. So I should have known better, but, but it just never really crossed my radar screen. Uh, it actually wasn't until I went to college. Uh, and my freshman year of college, uh, it was that time at the beginning of the school year when uh, y'all will both know this and all of your listeners as well, when when every extracurricular club is out there, you know, recruiting students like crazy to come join this and this such and such club or such and such society. I happened to be walking through the science building at my university campus, and I saw a sign on a door for the introductory meeting of this organization called SEDS, the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Um, and the meeting was starting in like two or three minutes in the room I was walking past. And I said, oh, I kind of like space. Let me go check it out and see what it's like. Uh, and ended up, I just really liked the people that ran the club. Uh, I liked the activities. Um, my school didn't really have a big engineering presence. So uh, it was more scientists and policy majors, but 
uh, we would have, you know, deep discussions about space and what space policy should be and whether you should go to the moon or Mars and what balance you should have between, you know, civil and commercial and government and all, all these things that I'd never really thought about before that I found really mind expanding. Um, so that, that kind of got me hooked. I ended up um, declaring my major at the end of that year. Uh, I declared Earth and Planetary Sciences, despite having literally never taken a single class in the department, um, just because it seemed just the fact that a, a department named Planetary Sciences existed seemed awesome to me. And also as a, as a science nerd who couldn't quite decide if I wanted to major in chemistry or physics or astronomy, the fact that I could take all those classes and they all counted for credit in this one department sounded pretty good. Uh, and then I think most importantly, through that, uh, through this organization, through SEDS, that's how I discovered space as an actual industry. And that, yes, there's astronauts who are wonderful and mission controllers, and they're wonderful too. But we also have engineers and scientists and, hell, space lawyers and space artists and all these other kinds of things. Uh, and so that kind of taught me that there that there could be a role for me in space. Uh, and and uh, that's that's how I caught the bug. And, and once I had it, it, it never let go of me. So I, I became really, really passionate about space. I've taken a few twists and turns throughout my career and, you know, how specifically I wanted to be involved in that community and, and where I thought my talents best lay. But but I always knew from that moment on that that space was the place for me. Definitely. Yeah, I think the, the astronaut thing you were talking about is true. A lot of kids like when they think space, they think astronauts and I noticed I was I don't know if it was Bob or Doug, but one of them was wearing glasses during the launch or something. I was like, hold on, wait a minute. Exactly. Very different than it used to be. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what your role is with SEDS now and, and why you're in that role? Yeah. So uh, like I said, I, I, I feel really grateful to SEDS because it opened my eyes to my entire career. Uh, and I can say without a shadow of a doubt that if I hadn't walked by that room at that time, and if I hadn't gone to that one meeting of that one club, everything about my life would be different. Uh, and so that, that's always uh, close close to my heart and, and to my brain um, uh, has always kept me involved. It's also been amazing to see how much SEDS has changed since I was a student. So I, I was a student um, back you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and at the time, SEDS had been around for a while, but had almost died out. There were, uh, to the best I've ever been able to figure out, there were three SEDS chapters when I was a student. Um, there was my chapter at Harvard, there was one at MIT, and we sort of heard rumors that there was one at Caltech, but we didn't have any way of talking to them. Uh, and the MIT and Harvard chapters, we would do stuff together once or twice a year, but, but that was about it. Um, but then, you know, after I had graduated and uh, I worked for a little while, then I went back to graduate school. Uh, I'd sort of kept in touch with some of the people in the SEDS community, and there started to be a little bit of a resurgence um, of the SEDS world, eventually enough that Space Vision, which had existed before I was a SEDS member, but sure as heck wasn't a thing when I was a SEDS student, that started to come back. Uh, and so I went to the first Space Vision of what I'll call the modern era, which was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, in 2005 or six or some, something like that. Uh, and just uh, had a wonderful time connecting with other space professionals, um, connecting with space students. Uh, you know, as, as I think everyone who's at my, my age and my point of life realizes, uh, talking with students is wonderful because you all are so full of enthusiasm uh, and stuff that I've become jaded and cynical about or, or, or that I still like, but I just sort of forgotten I like because it's just normal. Um, seeing it for the first time again through your eyes is, is, is really wonderful. Um, it also shows me how, you know, oftentimes 
a pretty small effort from someone who's been in the industry from a while can make a huge difference to a young person's career because y'all are full of ideas and you're full of intelligence, but you just don't know that much about the industry because you're, you're not in it yet. You're, you're sort of observing it from the periphery as you study it. Uh, and so, you know, little connections to a company you might not have heard of or a mentor that you might not have a way to get their email address or a textbook that you never would have thought to search for in the library, you know, that, that costs me nothing other than a few seconds of thought and, and can literally change a life. Uh, and so I, I just found that really, really rewarding. Uh, so stayed, stayed involved, started going to every space vision, started donating, started uh, advising the executive directors. Um, a few years later, SEDS had grown enough to the point where um, we wanted to uh, assure the long-term stability of the organization. We had sort of learned the hard way that uh, SEDS, like a lot of student organizations, was following a classic sine wave of, of boom and bust cycles where you'd have some great student leadership who would really build up the organization and then graduate and then nothing would happen and everything would go away. And then, you know, a few years later, a new great student would come up. They'd discover the like archeological wreckage of this, of this organization. They'd revive it. They'd spend a huge amount of time, you know, reopening the bank account and tracking down all the paperwork and reconnecting with the alumni. And then they'd graduate and they would die again. Uh, and so we sort of realized, Hey, that, even though part of the magic of says is that it's student run and we should never allow that to change. You shouldn't have old folks like me that are telling y'all what to do or, or steering you too much, but there is a role probably for alumni to, uh, to, to maintain, to sort of, to, to raise the, the, the baseline about which you're modulating there so that the troughs aren't, aren't at zero or, or below zero uh, and to provide a little bit of institutional knowledge so that when y'all have graduated and someone else is hosting SEDS cast a couple of years from now, I can say, oh, you remember that time and then make sure you use this software and, and blah, 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 and kind of share those lessons that, that you might not have written down or you might have written down on a server that doesn't exist anymore or that is specific to your university or, or whatever else. Uh, so yeah, I've gotten to stay stay involved in that way. Um, I've been to, uh, I don't know, something like uh, over a dozen Space Vision conferences and have gotten to work closely with uh, with all the chairs and executive directors uh, ever since and, and really watched the organization uh, blossom and grow into what it is today, which is really exciting for me to see. Definitely. That was well put about kind of maintaining the continuity and having alumni involved while, you know, letting the students pursue their passions. So I'm going to, I think Chad's going to get into some questions about your early career, but I wanted to ask one Space Vision question first. I think everyone who's been there is, is a pretty big fan of the Off the Record panel. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about why that panel exists and, and why you're willing to run that. Yeah, uh, I love that panel. Um, and uh, I've always enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm so grateful to all the people who have been on it every year, honestly, because they are really putting themselves out there. The backstory behind that is uh, several years ago, I was having I was at another space conference and I was having uh, a conversation with a friend of mine, a truly spectacular aerospace professional named Carissa Christensen, who is the founder of Bryce Space and Technology, among several other uh, aerospace companies. Um, Carissa is uh, an amazing human being and super intelligent and extraordinarily well connected and knowledgeable uh, about the aerospace industry. And she'd gotten an invitation to talk at Space Vision and she knew I was really involved in said so she sort of pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, it sounds like a great conference and I love students, but I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm traveling around the world all the time. I'm really, really busy. Like, 
this sounds warm and cuddly, but but should I go? Is this is this sort of uh, should I write a check or send a letter or, or do a video talk or should I actually go in person? And I sort of talked her through the reasons that I like to go and a lot of the ones that I just said. Uh, and I and I sort of ended by saying and and here's the other thing I suggest, Chris. If you go to this conference, recognize that it's unlike any other conference you you go to in a couple ways. One really important way that it's different is that the audience are not your customers. They're uh, they're students, right? They might become your customers 10 years from now or 20 years from now, or they might become your employees or, or just your friends and colleagues in the industry. But um, you can kind of have no fear about what you're saying. Cause you know, as a, as a professional in the industry, you've always got opinions and, and you may feel tempted to sort of couch them. Cause, Oh, I don't want to offend so-and-so, or I don't want to play favorites between these. Cause what if I want to work there in the future or my friends work there and I don't want to put them down or I don't want to lift them up too much. Uh, and I just sort of said, this is really different. So maybe you can give a different kind of talk than you've ever given before. And, and Chris, uh, you know, speaks at a lot of space conferences and always does it really well. But after a while, they become a, a little bit repetitive because you're sort of saying the same similar thing to a different audience. So so she sort of said, oh, that sounds interesting. And then we went off and did other things. And I kind of forgot the conversation had ever happened because I didn't hear anything more from her uh, about it. And then I show up at Space Vision uh, later that year, uh, and it was at Arizona State University. And I say... Hey, Chris, it's great to see you here. I'm glad you chose to come. She's like, I, I came and I took your suggestion. You should come to my talk. Uh, so I went to her talk and what she did was, I think she had an hour long session. She took her normal speech and she sort of condensed it into 30 minutes and gave herself a 30 minute block. And then she gave a second talk and she said, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you some real talk here. I need everyone to turn off their phones. And it was being webcast, so stop the webcast, stop recording. And she gave uh, a talk uh, I'm going to use a little bit of minor profanity here. I hope that's okay. She gave a talk called Honing Your Bullshit Detectors, um, which I thought was the most incredible talk I had ever seen given at any conference ever. Um, because what she was doing was she was taking her hard-earned experience and giving it to students in this hyper-condensed form uh, and allowing students to see, you know, uh, all the wonderful ways in which students are, are so necessary for this industry and they bring so much uh, absolutely critical creativity and enthusiasm that often also comes with a bit of naivete. Uh, and, uh, and that I have seen many times how that really negatively impacts the students themselves because, you know, y'all are incredible. You will move across country and totally change your life to pursue a dream of a vision that you believe in for a company or a government program. Meanwhile, all of us old heads are sitting there like, oh, that company's a joke. Like, it's never going to never gonna work. It's like, oh, my God, these poor, these, these poor students don't, and it's not an intelligence thing. It's just an experience thing. They don't, they don't know enough to know that. And it's not just about little startups. It's about, you know, when I was a student, if the NASA administrator said, we're going to have boots on the moon by 2024, like, there was no doubt in my mind, it was 100% chance that's going to happen because that's the NASA administrator. And he's super smart and he runs everything, right? And, and if he or she says that, of course that will happen. And as you grow up, you learn, oh, it doesn't matter who the administrator is. I, I happen to really like this NASA administrator and, and I think he is very smart and very powerful, but you know, that is not a guarantee, that's a goal. <laughs> and there's a big difference on that if you're a young student who's planning your life and your student debt pay down and like everything else around, around that schedule or that concept or that press release. And she didn't go through and say, this is company's good and this company's bad and this is BS and this is real. She just sort of said like, hey, here's the questions that you might not have thought to ask 
And here's the other resources that you might have thought to look at when you're applying for a job or when you're signing a petition or when you're you know, doing all these other things that young people do. Uh, and uh, you could, I could just like see brains exploding in the audience there. And, and me and a couple of the other uh, folks who are in the middle of our careers are sitting in the back like, this is awesome. She's giving away all the secrets and like, good, we, we really, really, really need that. So I just I thought it was wonderful and I wanted to recreate it. Um, and I, I, I knew we couldn't impose on Carissa to come and do it every year. And I also knew that the, the amount of people who would be as brave as she was to go out there and, and to do that in an audience where you never know if someone's going to tweet it and you never know if someone's going to record it. You can ask them not to do it. Uh, I thought that would be hard, but I, I thought, A, there might be some safety in numbers. If I could get a couple people to all agree to it, then they might draw more out of each other. And I also knew, you know, there's lots of different perspectives and, uh, and uh, what one person in one part of the industry sees and thinks is not the same as what another part sees. So, uh, so that, that was sort of the birth of, of that panel. So let's get a couple people who have been in the trenches, um, who are opinionated <laughs> and brave and willing to speak out about it. Um, I try uh, working with the students every year to have it be a mix of people whose opinions I always respect, but sometimes I disagree with pretty strongly. Um, because I, I think that, you know, you, you need to, you need to put all this out there and you need to give students a chance to, uh, to ask new questions and to hear new data points and to come to their own conclusions. And, 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 uh, I think off the record has been just such a fun way to make that happen every year. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and so obviously you've done a lot of amazing things throughout your entire career, but I noticed that you used to be a flightless or a weightless flight coach at one point. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so that was a really fun side job that I had. Um, I spent many years uh, early in my career working at a nonprofit called the XPRIZE Foundation, which was founded by a gentleman named Peter Diamandis, who ha also happens to be the founder of SEDS, among a hundred other things. Uh, and Peter uh, is a fascinating human being and a boss that will push you to grow in a, in a million and one different ways. Um, uh, and while he was running XPRIZE, while I was there at XPRIZE, he also was running a company called Zero Gravity Corporation, which uh, is the only, or at the time was the only, and I believe is still the only in the United States, commercial operator of weightless flight, of parabolic flights. Uh, and they had a, an old, I think it's a Boeing 727 that they'd uh, basically stripped all the seats out of, except for a few in the back. They'd installed padding everywhere. And you could board, you know, civilian, fair paying passengers on the back of this aircraft. Uh, fly them up into a controlled piece of airspace and basically just fly over a set of rolling hills. And every time you're sort of cresting over the top half of a hill, uh, you can have put the plane in free fall. And, uh, and if the plane is in free fall, the people inside are in free fall. That, that's what microgravity is. Uh, and so these, uh, the, these customers could get, you know, 25 or so seconds of pretty good quality microgravity per parabola multiplied by something like 15, per, per, uh, 15 parabolas per flight. And so since I was working for Peter and this was his side business and, and I knew on the flight, they had these things called zero gravity coaches. I said, Oh, Peter, man, I got to do that. I'm so excited. I had been uh, fortunate enough when I was in graduate school to have an experiment selected for flight on board, uh, on board a parabolic aircraft. And I'd never gotten to do it because the schedule of the flight happened to fall in the middle of final exams or something I just couldn't do. So I'd had a close call and, and had missed it, had never flown in parabolic on a parabolic flight, had always wanted to do it both for fun and for science. Uh, and, and Peter was kind enough 
to uh, to hire me and, and ultimately my wife as well and, and have us be coaches to work some of the flights because the aircraft would move around the country. And so they sort of need, needed coaches in a lot of different cities and we would work some of the LA flights. And that was an awesome, awesome job because I got to uh, experience uh, weightlessness several different times um, and uh, to help other people experience it for the first time. So I've never been, I've never been on one of those flights where I haven't been working um, and been there only for the purposes of having fun, but I sure as hell have had fun uh, every time uh, and gotten to, uh, gotten to see, see the, again, see those kind of big smiles uh, from the people who are experiencing weightlessness uh, for the first time. It was a really, really fantastic program. I highly recommend, you know, anyone uh, who has the means to fly should fly. Uh, for students, there are not nearly as many as there should be, but there are some opportunities for students to fly on research flights. Um, and if you aren't already considering that, consider that. I uh, couldn't recommend it more to talk to your faculty uh, advisors, talk to your favorite professors, talk to your SEDS chapter leadership and say, hey, can we put together an experiment and, and fly it? It almost doesn't matter what the experiment is. Uh, part of it's just an excuse to fly, but you can also do some really good science and engineering on board and, and you won't regret it. Uh, we did work. We did work a couple flights together. Yes, yes. And we'd always be, uh, they sort of would divide the fuselage of the aircraft up into different sections and every coach would be looking at, you know, uh, at customers in a different section. So we'd often be uh, at other ends of the airplane. Um, but yes, we would make sure to sort of fly Superman style down the center of the airplane and, and have a zero G smooch, which is, uh, which is wonderful. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. And then I also noticed you set up a, uh, in the early stages of the internet, a website called spacealumni.com. That was my first experience in being an accidental entrepreneur, um, which was, which was, I learned a ton and a lot of fun. Uh, what had happened there was, uh, so for graduate school, I went to a place called the International Space University, which was also founded by Peter Diamandis uh, and by Todd Holly and by Bob Richards. So very much the same founding uh, fathers, founding members as uh, as says itself has um and i love my time at isu i i, I speak very highly of the university um it, it did wonderful things for me in my career um but one thing that i didn't like about the university as a recent graduate way back in 2004 uh was that for a school that really pride prided and continues to pride itself on the strong bonds between its alumni and on the fantastic careers that its alumni have that its alumni have gone on to, uh, I found it frustrating that there was not like an online searchable database of alumni. It's one thing to say, yes, we have alumni running four different space agencies around the world, which ISU does, which is awesome. And, and senior executives of all these companies, that's great. It's another thing to say like, oh, you know what? I actually wanna do business with the National Space Agency of Nigeria and their, 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 uh, their head or executive director, whatever the title is, is an ISU alumnus. Uh, I, I want to be able to look that person up and contact that person in the way that y'all will soon be able to do for your, you probably can do it already for, for your universities. You can probably look in a system, you can find other alums of your school, you can send them a message, you know, through a system where they will recognize it that sort of says, hey, this person is a Wolverine like I am. And okay, they're probably not a crazy person. And I should actually read this email. And, and maybe I feel some sense of collegiate pride. And I really want to get back to them. That just didn't exist for my graduate school. And so as an alum, I sort of said, hey, just so, you, just so you know, we alums, we would like this. And I happen to already have a job, but I have a bunch of my classmates who are still job hunting and I know it would be really useful for them. And the school sort of wasn't able to do it through a complicated mix of 
French privacy laws and, and a bunch of other institutional things. Uh, and so I went from sort of like suggesting to requesting to offering to help with it to finally just saying, well, dang it, I'm going to do it myself. Uh, if you can't make it, I'm going to do it. And I partnered up with uh, a dear friend of mine, another one of my classmates at ISU named Nick Skitland. And we ended up making this website called spacealumni.com. It was just creating, originally the idea was just let's create the online repository of everyone from this university so we can actually find each other. It was kind of like a very basic form of LinkedIn, but LinkedIn wasn't really, it technically existed, but wasn't really a thing back then. And then we said, well, as long as we're doing that, maybe we should have some like news stories and some features and we should do interviews and we should have some, we should be generating content, not just, not just, you know, contacts. Uh, and so I got to uh, masquerade as an editor in chief and, and, and Nick did all the website stuff because he is, uh, in addition to being an awesome engineer and a wonderful human being, he's, uh, he happens to be like a great graphic designer and, and has visual art skills that I couldn't even dream of. So he designed the look and feel of it and I would program some of the content and end up bringing in some other important volunteers from the, from the space community. Uh, and uh, it grew from being something for ISU only to alums of five or six different schools to eventually just open for anyone anywhere in the world. Um, and, uh, and turned out to be kind of a successful thing that we were just doing uh, a little bit as a, as a side project. Um, which was a, a ton of fun and also just introduced me to a lot of people in the industry because I'd be contacting them either. Either they would join and it's like, oh, I was going to make a really dated reference. I was going to talk about MySpace, but y'all are probably way too young for, for MySpace. Uh, it used to be when you would join a service like MySpace, like everyone had the same first friend because it was like the person who started MySpace. It was kind of similar uh, to that with the service. Like I was connected with most of these people and uh, and I could send them a note through the system as could Nick to say, hey, do you want to sign up for this feature or, or, or do whatever else? Uh, so really a, a great professional networking opportunity and, and just a fun opportunity for me to uh, kind of lead something or co-lead with Nick something, um, both from a business perspective and a strategy perspective and an execution perspective. I, I got to learn, learn a ton from doing that. Awesome. So let's shift gears a little bit here and switch over to the different Virgin companies you've worked for. So that would start with Virgin Galactic, correct? Yeah, that is correct. So how did you first hear about that? How did you get involved and, and where did you start off there? So um, I first joined Virgin at Virgin Galactic uh, a little over nine years ago. Um, I had, uh, it actually ties in with the story we were just talking about, about spacealumni.com going, going all the way back to that. Uh, to that time period when I was helping with Nick and I and, and a few other really uh, wonderful people were, were uh, helping to create that effort. Um, I also wanted to uh, make an alumni conference for ISU um, just to sort of physically gather people in the same space. And I knew I didn't have the resources. Not, none of us had the resources to run a conference. You know, we didn't have any money and we all had full-time jobs and and whatever else, but but we did we started to have the names of people and the connections to people who might come if we were able to do it. And so what we did was I was living in Washington D.C. at the time, and I realized that there was a big aerospace conference that was happening in Washington D.C. later that year that was going to be fairly broadly attended in the aerospace industry. This was a, a conference called ISDC, the International Space Development Conference or Congress and Conference, uh, run by an organization called the National Space Society, and I contacted the guy who ran the National Space Society, a guy named George Whitesides, um, who had some connections into the ISU family. And I sort of said, hey, George, I've been really wanting to run a conference and I don't have the resources. I know you're running a conference. Is there anything I can do for you 
uh, and in exchange, maybe you'll let me piggyback a little bit off your conference and I can, you know, use some of the space in the, in the hotel that you have booked. And uh, if you're printing, you know, programs, maybe you can print a couple of my little things as well. And, and he sort of said, yeah, that sounds great. You know, uh, let's make a deal. If you can bring me a, a couple of speakers and a couple of attendees and if you can do some of the young professional event planning, um, then, uh, then that sounds like a wonderful, mutually beneficial relationship. So I was able to do that and, and it did, it worked out, uh, hopefully it certainly worked out really well from my end. It seemed to, like it worked out really well from George's end as a nice, nice kind of thing. And, and, uh, just sort of formed a friendship with George and, and realized that we worked together well and, um, and had kind of, uh, pretty simpatico personalities and, and whatever else. So fast forward many years, uh, I actually ended up getting a job at that conference, which is a whole nother story. That's where I, uh, that's where I got a job offer from Peter and ended up going to work at XPRIZE for many years. Uh, George continued to do a fantastic job running National Space Society and then was named by then President-elect Obama to be on the transition team to help chart out the course for NASA during the Obama administration, then became chief of staff of the entire agency uh, for many years, and then left NASA to become the CEO of Virgin Galactic. And at the time he joined Virgin Galactic, um, it was still a pretty small team. It was kind of a, a, a young startup in and of itself. It had been around for a while and it had had a small but really wonderful uh, commercial team over in the UK, um, but hadn't really had a technical organization because they'd contracted out all the technical work. And when George came in, they were just starting to bring more of that technical work in-house because uh, that was always sort of the long-term plan to do that. Uh, and so he was going from a team that had been, you know, whatever, 15 people in the UK to now starting to grow what is now like a thousand people, or many years later, about a thousand people uh, between a couple companies uh, over here in the United States. And uh, I think George recognized that as he was leading this rapidly growing organization, he needed someone who was uh, a little bit of a jack of all trades, even if they were a master of none. Um, and kind of knew from his experience working with me that, that I fit the bill for that and that, uh, that he and I worked together well. Uh, so he called me up and he asked if I was job hunting and I hadn't been when the phone rang. Um, but I was, I think as soon as he said those words, cause Virgin Galactic was, uh, you know, was and remains a company that, uh, uh, both I admire greatly and, and whose mission is, uh, near and dear to my own heart. Uh, so, uh, when he offered me the chance to come on board. At you know uh, at pretty something pretty close to the ground floor because it was still such a new organization uh, and in a, in a role that had a lot of uh, really fun aspects to it I I left at that chance and joined joined Virgin in February or March of of 2011 with the title of Vice President of Special Projects which is a title I love so much I've kept it ever since simply because it's inherently meaningless <laughs> and it allows me to do a whole bunch of different things uh, which is kind of what what I enjoy. Best kind of title to have, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, and my job, you know, honestly, was to do whatever George needed, uh, which which varied pretty uh, intensely from not necessarily day to day, but certainly from week to week or month to month. Uh, and uh, it, it was the classic sort of new startup phenomenon of, you know, almost every day you're going to uncover either a new category of risk or a new category of opportunity that you had no idea existed yesterday. And you better have a pretty good understanding of it by the time your investors give you a call that evening to see how the day went. Uh, and so it just needed someone who couldn't, you know, wasn't a, wasn't a, wasn't an expert in any of these fields, but uh, could sort of help. Okay, how do we quickly come to understanding with this? How do we how do we take the super smart people we have on staff and just sort of 
know who to call on to answer this type of question or to address this type of opportunity and, and, and help pull all that together. Uh, so I had a wonderful time doing that. George is a dear friend and mentor and was a fantastic boss. Worked for him for many years. Um, one of my other jobs when I wasn't addressing whatever was either the, the crisis or the opportunity of the moment, um, my other job was to take uh, a list of sort of other business areas that the company could go into. And this was a, a list that had been created way before I ever got there, um, uh, but was pretty much the proverbial, you know, bullet points on a napkin list of, oh, we could build space hotels, or we could do, uh, you know, we could do point-to-point -point transportation, or we could do research flights, or we could do small satellite launch vehicles or whatever else. Uh, it was to help work with a team of people much smarter than myself to go through that list, to flesh out those ideas, and to try and assess, okay, which of these are good ideas and which aren't? Uh, which should we do ourselves versus contracting out or partnering or joint venturing or suggesting to someone else? What should we do now versus what's a great idea that's a decade ahead of its time and, and everything else? And uh, one of the ideas that was on that list, again, certainly not my idea, existed way before I got there, but I, I got to help look at it, was the idea that maybe Virgin should get into the business of launching small satellites primarily into low Earth orbit. Um, and so I got asked to help look both at a kind of an engineering feasibility study of what can we do in that field and at a market feasibility study of what should we do in that field? You know, is there anyone who actually wants that service and what exactly do they want and how much can they pay for it and things like that? Uh, and to, you know, to help, uh, the company, uh, decide the strategy for whether we should do that or, or not. Um, and, uh, I'll admit much to my surprise, uh, I was pretty skeptical about the idea going in. But as, uh, as I learned from my colleagues and others in industry, and as we sort of clicked through the study, uh, decided, yeah, actually, I think this is a really exciting opportunity. Um, I think this is good for the world, and I think it could be good for the business, and let's do it. Um, so got to go and uh, with George and, and, and others, uh, help uh, get some investment for that, help hire you know, key people like our chief engineer and some of the early technical leaders, and get started what uh, at the time seemed like a small side project but has now grown into its whole own company, uh, now called Virgin Orbit, uh, and uh, and set up a giant rocket factory and start uh, start churning out rockets, uh, which has been man, what a journey! Sounds like it. So how you know you're talking about you have all these different ideas and stuff that you're looking at, and I'm guessing as you know VP of special projects, you don't know what one you're going to pick or if you're going to pick one. But how do you go through and actually evaluate the technical feasibility of it, like? Like you said, you know, you're a jack of all trades, but you might not know exactly what's feasible and what's not technically. Are you reaching out to experts within your existing company or reaching out to people you know? How do you evaluate if something's possible? Yeah, well, you you, you got to try and do both because um, uh, internal people, internal experts and colleagues can help you figure out not only can it be done, but can you do it? You know, can this group of people do it? Or, or what do we need to add to this group of people in order to be able to do it? And then external experts can make sure you're not fooling yourself because uh, it can be really positive, really possible to, to fool yourself and say, yeah, I love these people. We could do everything. And you probably could do anything, but you can't do everything. Right? You got you to gotta prioritize and you got to, if you're doing this, you can't be doing that. And, and it's sometimes hard to see that when you're looking only at yourself. Uh, purely internally, whereas others can see that really quickly and say, oh, if you've got sh you've got her working on that, she's not working on this, and now you've got a glaring hole in your problem in, in your project, you need to go and fill that one, from one, or, one way or another. Uh, so yeah, having uh, trusted people internally and externally is key. 
finding in both those groups the right mix of you want um, you want some people who have been there and done that um, because they'll keep you from repeating other people's mistakes and they'll also be calibrated pretty well to like oh not only is that doable is that a one month effort or a one year effort or a one decade effort um, and, and people who have done something similar can tell that really well but you don't want only that because if you have only people like that, then you're going to repeat someone else's solution, which isn't what you're going for. So you've got to try and find the right balance between some mavericks and some veterans. Uh, and whether you do that through, uh, you know, years of experience in the industry or just personality or, or whatever else you try and sort of ma manage that blend. Uh, and then for me, the other critical aspect is um, having a fairly honest self-assessment of when you know what the hell you're talking about and when you don't. Um, there's a there's a real value to having a gut feel for things um, of, yeah, okay, I've never looked at this problem, but I'm gonna think about it for a minute and yeah, I could imagine us doing that. I don't know how, but I could imagine us doing that. Like that that, that level of gut intuition um, is important, but but only when it is paired with the, I have no idea, like I, I, I literally, I could not even begin to assess that thing. That could be a really easy problem that we would have solved by next week, or that could be, you know, an, uh, you'd have to break the laws of physics to solve this problem. And, and I personally am just unable to answer that question. I need to go find someone who's smarter than I am or who's closer to that subject matter uh, than I am or, or, or whatever else. Uh, so uh, I feel lucky that at Virgin, I've always been surrounded by people much smarter than I am. Uh, and hopefully I've had uh, the sort of self-awareness to know when I could trust my gut and when I needed to ignore my gut and go trust their guts. Definitely. Uh, so for people not familiar with the launch vehicle of Virgin Orbit, could you just quickly describe what it is and what makes it different from obviously a lot of other companies? Yeah. So we are a, a responsive launch company. Uh, we are in the latter stages of testing what we plan to and hope to make uh, the world's most flexible and most responsive launch service uh, focused on smaller satellites, primarily to low Earth orbit. Um, I think small satellites and in turn small launch is one of the most exciting and dynamic parts of the industry right now. There's lots of players, both on the satellite side and on the launch side. Uh, a lot of great ideas um, uh, um, and a lot of people working genuinely and very, very hard to achieve them. What makes us different um, is uh, largely driven by um, some technical choices and some sort of what I'll call business choices. Uh, on the technical side, the big thing that's different about our system from basically everyone else is that we use a technique called air launch. Uh, and we certainly didn't invent it. It's been around for a long time, but it's not the most common mode. What that means is that when we're launching something to space, we are not starting with a rocket that's standing on its tail at Cape Canaveral or Vandenberg or Crew or, or, or wherever else. Uh, instead, we're starting with a rocket that's strapped underneath the wing of an aircraft. Uh, in our case, specifically, it's under the left wing of a Boeing 747 that we've modified for that purpose. We love air launch for a bunch of reasons. It certainly adds a bunch of upfront com complexity um, because you're not on the ground and you can't just go and plug into the electrical mains and the, the water system and the sewer system and everything else. You got to have it all mobile and not only mobile, it's got to be mobile on an airplane, which comes with engineering and safety requirements. But if you're able to sort of bite off that upfront difficulty, uh, what we find uh, beautiful about it is now you now not only your rocket, your entire launch site moves, you know, and I love Cape Canaveral as much as anyone else. But one thing it's not very good at is moving. It's, it's in one spot on the globe. 
and uh, and you're not going to get it somewhere else. Um, and Chad, you live in Florida, you'll know. You know, in, in Florida, most rockets don't fly in the rain. And you're in Florida. Never. Yeah, yeah, and ruins so many launches. Exactly. Yeah. So you you, you, got, you can have weather that comes your way. Um, you have expensive ground infrastructure, which for the most part is single throughput. You can only be supporting one launch at a time, even from a fantastic facility like Cape Canaveral or or Vandenberg. Um, you know, so you got to worry about delays and threats, whether those are anthropogenic or or purely natural. Uh, you got to worry about traffic jams at launch sites, and we're we're definitely starting to see those now. But the other thing is, you know, from every launch site, um, you have clear and open launch azimuths to uh, to a couple orbital inclinations uh, and not to all the others. Uh, and so you've got, for reasons both of safety and of physics, you can't get to every orbit efficiently from every launch site. Uh, and if you want to be able to support lots of different types of missions and to go to lots of different types of orbit, it's awfully nice to have a launch pad that moves and can do today's flight from the equator and tomorrow's flight from the west coast of the United States and the next flight from the United Kingdom and the one after that from uh, an island in the Pacific or, you know, whatever, whatever else it is. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's what we are trying to do. We've developed um, a system called Launcher One, which is both the name of the rocket and the name of the launch service. Uh, it is, as I mentioned, it's a modified Boeing 747 aircraft uh, and then a two-stage two expendable liquid-fueled rocket that we've designed and built ourselves, uh, again, called Launcher One, which can be used to, to, to launch you know, typically a couple hundred kilograms, something that in volume is probably a little bit bigger than a household refrigerator um, uh, or a chest freezer or something like that. Launch something like that in, in, into low Earth orbit, uh, starting from lots of different places and going to lots of different orbits. And, and we're finding that that combination of uh, an affordable, dedicated ride for small satellites that can sometimes hitch a ride very cheaply on a big rocket, but sometimes can't afford to do that. Uh, and then when you combine that with the responsiveness, the flexibility, the mobility that comes with our air launch system, uh, we're finding that proves to be a really powerful combination for a pretty wide variety of missions. So another company I really like is Rocket Labs, and I think they have a similar thesis. Is your pitch over Rocket Labs that basically you're more versatile and you can you know launch if there's weather or something because you have such a mobile platform? Yeah, I think Rocket Lab is a great company, and I've got only only nice things to say about them. It's really been really impressive to chart their uh, their progress. I think they were founded in 2006 or something, and uh, and in in the years since, particularly in these last couple of years, um, they've done really wonderful things for the community. The the difference between uh, us and them one is just scale. So we're sort of roughly speaking uh, twice the mass to orbit at less than twice the price. So uh, there are some systems that can only fly on ours, and there's some systems for which theirs is is kind of a better fit um, because the price per rocket. Is uh, is less, uh, and then uh, and then that yeah that ref that uh, that flexibility and that responsiveness that comes you know they've got uh, they they boast uh, of having the world's most beautiful launch site and I, I I'll give that to them I think they do have a really beautiful launch site and I know they're looking to bring a lot of others uh, online uh, which is awesome and it's very much what the world needs and there's definitely commercial demand for it um, but it's a different thing to build a new launch site on the ground versus to fly a seven forty seven somewhere else you know that that's something that that we can do incredibly quickly. Um, as we demonstrated with our, our launch demo just a, a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we conducted that. That was the first ever orbital launch attempt from that facility, the Mojave Air and Spaceport. And what we needed from the spaceport was uh, a taxiway, a runway, and a plot of dirt, and a launch license. 
and that's it. Everything else we brought up there. Uh, so it's, it's, it's basically no permanent infrastructure required other than a runway. The runway has to be a runway that supports 747s, which are the most successful commercial aircraft of all time. So there's lots of those runways. Uh, so it really means that um, we can go to places that honestly we've never even thought of going. You know, we've already had that happen a bunch of times where someone will call us about a launch and we'll be excited about how we could help them. And then their next question will be, well, actually, could you do the launch from here? Because my, you know, my nation builds satellites, but we don't launch satellites and we'd like to launch satellites. We don't want to build a, we don't want to build a rocket or even a spaceport, uh, but we got, we have an unused runway or an underused runway. Uh, and, uh, you know, you guys could be here in 24 hours and that sounds pretty good. Uh, so it, having the ability to uh, accommodate sort of the unknown unknowns um, uh, is something really, really wonderful uh, about the system and, and also just really fun to work on, honestly. Yeah, that versatility does seem like it. it's very impressive, especially for, like you said, nations that maybe aren't super into space right now, you know, giving them access and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about, at least in your experience, what is, besides obviously that it's strapped to an airplane, what's like the most difficult technical part of having the rocket attached there? Is it the fueling process? Is it communicating with it data-wise? Like what stands out to you as the most difficult part? Yeah, I, I suspect every engineer in our company would have their own parochial answer to that. And surely it's the part that they're working on. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I guess because there are there are some hard parts um, to it. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say the the big challenge that everyone, both within our company and external to our company, was wary of from the moment we first announced this program uh, was the fact that not only are we air launched, uh, were air launched and liquid fueled. Uh, and there have been other air launched systems that have gone to orbit, like Pegasus, a really wonderful vehicle uh, that uses solid rocket motors. There have been liquid fueled things that have been dropped off airplanes and ignited, but they have not been orbital class launch vehicles. Um, and just, just sort of the physics and the engineering of how do you take big tanks full of fluid that are under the wing of an airplane and experiencing all those aerodynamic forces and then drop them and have them in free fall with everything that's going on there. Uh, and yet be confident that when you go to turn on your engine uh, and you go to ingest fuel into the system that you are indeed going to ingest fuel rather than an air bubble uh, or, or whatever else. Um, you know, that, that certainly, um, that was a, 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 you know, a challenge that I had a lot of people when we first announced this program straight up say, you will never solve that. That is impossible. It, it cannot be done on any sort of practical cost-effective means. And you really should have picked solids at least for the first stage. And, and why'd you do this? Um, uh, so uh, I was not the one who solved it. So I can't say exactly how hard it, how hard it was to solve. Um, but uh, we were really thrilled to see in our big launch demo a couple of weeks ago that, that we solved that one. We were able to get great ignition on the system there and, uh, and, and conquer that particular problem, which uh, was one that stood out from the start. Definitely. Yeah, so another thing I was thinking about was when you think about Blue Origin or SpaceX, you know, Jeff Bezos' thesis is a million people working and living, and Elon's is obviously a city on Mars. What does Virgin Orbit stand for as kind of its its final goal? Or, like, what does Richard Branson sort of stand out? Like, what's the final goal? Yeah, Richard is pretty different from Elon and, and Jeff um, in, in, in a, many senses. One key one that I think really is relevant to this is, um, you know, Richard's not an engineer. 
uh, and, and Elon, you know, certainly comes from a technical background and is a spectacular engineer. Jeff comes from an engineering background. Um, uh, and I, I think that because they come from that background and they are as talented as they are in those things, um, they have both, I think, come, as you say, into the industry with a very specific, uh, I have this thing I want to do and I don't see anyone else doing it. So I'm going to go figure out the right way to do it. Uh, you know, uh, and that's been needed, I think, and really beneficial in so many ways to the industry. Richard's pretty different. You know, Richard is not an engineer uh, or a scientist. He doesn't come from any technical background. He didn't go to college. He barely finished high school. Um, he is not uh, a technical genius. Um, he's a business genius. Uh, he, he sort of comes to all of his businesses from a very different perspective, not of I've built a better widget. Let me go figure out what to do with it. He generally starts all his businesses coming from the perspective of being a frustrated consumer of someone else and just sort of saying, uh, I have this thing I want to buy. Why is it so hard to either get it at all or get it at a reasonable price or get it and be treated well, whether that's, you know, airlines that always treat their customers like they were cattle uh, or whether that's, you know, satellites not being available for launch on the schedules and at the prices that seem reasonable to a, a new evolving class of, of businesses. So he, he, he often has this uh, experience that I find classic to lots of entrepreneurs, even if it's relatively uh, uncommon in the aerospace industry uh, of, uh, of approaching it from the customer perspective uh, and saying, uh, here's a thing that I really want to buy that I can't buy. I'm going to take a leap of faith that I'm not the only one who wants to buy it. Uh, and so maybe if I could develop it, not only would I solve my own need, but I would be solving other people's needs as well. Uh, and so what that means is that Richard doesn't necessarily have as singular and as clear a vision for his own direct work in space as Mr. Musk or Mr. Bezos do. Um, he's more thinking about, hey, if I create this enabling technology, I will allow thousands of other entrepreneurs and innovators in other communities to each take on their things. And I don't know what their things are, and I might not even be able to understand what those things might be. But, uh, but I, I've, I've made it, I've sort of flipped a bit from those ideas were impossible to those ideas might be possible. Uh, and that, that's, I think, what excites him. The other thing I'll say is, you know, a, a big part of uh, what has driven, I think, a huge number of us in the space industry, not only the, the Elons and the Jeffs and the Richards, but, uh, but almost all of us working in the business is sort of thinking about what space means for the future of our species. And I know, you know, there's a, there's a camp that believes in uh, backing up the biosphere, in, uh, in making humans an interplanetary species so that we don't have all of our eggs in one basket, uh, which I think is an important vision. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have things I like and dislike about it, but it, but it certainly is a strong perspective um, that I think comes from absolutely the best of intentions. You, you also have uh, the camp, uh, you know, that, that uh, I believe Jeff Bezos is in it, among many others of, okay, what if we could take some industry off planet and move it to space where either it can be done better or it can be done cleaner uh, and allow it to benefit people in, in that way. And so there you get to millions of people living and working in space as, as they, they put it, which again, I think is a beautiful and well-intentioned and uh, an important vision uh, um, that has pros and cons, but is, but is, uh, I'm super excited someone is uh, so genuinely and intelligently pursuing it. Um, Richard uh, is uh, is thinking a little bit less about what's Plan B or Planet B, um, and more about how do we you know I, I like this planet a lot, 
and how do we uh, how do we protect this one? Uh, he will always say, you know, his his favorite planet isn't Mars; it's it's Earth, um, and we need to find better ways to treat this world, both from an environmental climate change perspective, doing things like monitoring ocean health and deforestation and illegal fishing, uh, but also just from providing uh, um, better economic opportunities to places that haven't yet seen much of the benefit of space. Uh, and so, uh, again, that sort of drives a slightly different focus where, uh, whereas, you know, both, both Blue Origin and SpaceX, and again, I mean this as no disrespect, as I'm, I, I'm so impressed by those teams technically, and I'm so glad that they exist because I think what they're doing is really, really important. But a lot of their drive is for ever bigger and more powerful rockets, right? So you start with a Falcon 1, and then you go to a Falcon 9, and then you go to a Falcon Heavy, and then you go to a Starship, and then you go, you know, you start with New Shepard, and then New Glenn, and then New Armstrong, and, and New Lindbergh, and, and all these other things. Um, uh, we think a little bit like that, but we are also thinking, hey, how do we go to like to the total opposite end of the market? How do we go smaller, faster, cheaper? Um, because uh, people that will never be able to afford the big things, as wonderful as those are, and as much as they brought down the price per kilogram, um, you know, it costs a lot to buy a big thing more than it costs to buy a small thing often. Uh, so let's let's importantly let's have all of those, right? Um, I, I often think about how weird our industry is compared to all these other industries on earth. Uh, and sometimes I've thought about the launch industry as uh, being, you know, by analogy, it'd be like if the entire automotive industry was only focused on build, building semi-trailers, like semi-trailers are awesome. And the job that they do, they do extremely well and they're very well built and they're very safe and they're very efficient and they're, but uh, if I'm, taking my kids to elementary school, I don't want to do it in a semi-trailer. And if I'm going for a, a nice romantic ride with my wife, I don't want to do that in a semi-trailer. And if I'm just going to the airport, I don't want to do that in a semi-trailer, right? There is a, there's a cause for everything from, you know, electric scooters and bicycles uh, up to, uh, up to 18 wheelers and, and everywhere in between. And so much of the space industry has always been focused on give me the most capacity possible. It, give me the most thrust, give me the most up mass, Give me the most Delta V. I want it. I want it. I want it. Cause I gotta, I gotta send bigger things farther out, moving faster. And that's great. Um, but now with, you know, rocket lab, as you mentioned, and us and lots of other exciting projects, really, you, you've got, you've got a dot almost everywhere on that spectrum. Um, and we'll, we'll see what, what the market actually wants in the long run and which of those are sustainable ideas and, and who starts out in one place and migrates to another as the migrant, as the market moves, but at least we'll have started with all these dots. Uh, and that's really different from what we've seen in this industry for a long time. And I think very, very necessary at a moment like right now when we're seeing so much innovation uh, and so much talent flood in with all kinds of crazy new ideas that no one's ever, uh, no one's ever considered, much less pursued before. I think the industry is really pivotal right now. So it's awesome that you guys are exploring something different. I did want to pivot a little bit and touch on something you mentioned before. So you called yourself a jack of all trades and a master of none. Typically in engineering, it's People go through, they want to specialize, they want to focus on one area, unless you hear about a jack of all trades. But obviously, you've been very successful in your career. How do you feel that that's helped you and maybe might set you apart from somebody else? Yeah, it, it definitely, it, it has been one of the defining traits of my career, um, I would say. Um, and I think it's had both its pros and its cons. Um, I, I talk, uh, I often have the great pleasure of talking to SEDS members 
some of whom see themselves in that way. You know, a lot of them don't. As you say, a lot, a lot of engineers have a very clear calling and they know exactly what they want to do. And not only is it engineering, not only is it electrical engineering, it's FPGAs. Like they, 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 they know that they've, they've taken a class or they've had a professor or they've worked in a lab and they've fallen in love with this thing and they want to go all in on antenna design and learn everything about it and be the best at that thing and contribute. And uh, I find those people remarkable and, uh, and also in a way alien because it's just so different from the way I think. I am, uh, I am a little bit more like a, a puppy dog. I kind of like everything and I want to learn about everything all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I can fall down Wikipedia rabbit holes as deep as anyone um, and, and just have always enjoyed sort of stimulating my brain in, in new ways and giving myself new challenges. I, I also sort of recognize that while I can focus and pin myself down on one thing, that's often not my strongest suit. Um, and if I force myself to do that, I can do it, but I probably can't do it as well as someone who that's their natural calling. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of learned, uh, thankfully, I, I feel as though I learned relatively early in my career that I should try and find jobs where I get to do a little bit of everything. The tough part is there uh, aren't always a lot of those jobs. The nice part is those jobs, because they get to do a little bit of everything, they get exposure to a little bit of everyone. Uh, and so if you can get in that position, you can also find yourself climbing leadership ranks pretty quickly or being able to move from the job you have to the one you want to have or from the company that you like to a company that you love pretty quickly because just by the nature of what you're doing, you're, you're sort of interacting with all these different communities and you're touching all these different circles of activity and you're, and you're becoming, um, if not entirely fluent, at least conversant in all these different things. And, and, and that's often what it requires. So, um, you know, this, this jack of all trades, master of none thing was something I really learned about myself in graduate school. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I went to this place called the International, International Space University for my graduate school. Um, and that's kind of what that university is all about. It's a, it's a year long master's program. It's international, intercultural, cultural, and interdisciplinary. Um, so the idea is over the course of one year, you learn not only about space engineering and space science, but also space business, space policy, law, regulation, space medicine, space management, space education, space everything, right? Um, um, and there's no other program that I'm aware of that is quite like that in terms of its scope. The trade-off is, you know, if you're going to be a mile wide, you're going to be an inch deep too. It's, it's very different from going on to a traditional master's degree in engineering or even something a little broader like a master's in systems engineering where you're doing lots of different things still you're all every day you're engineering all day uh you know and i would go at graduate school from a two-hour lecture about engineering to one about russian space history to one about physiology to one about you know whatever else um uh and and i really liked it uh, i sort of found as a consequence and i'm getting a little bit off track but I'll, I'll, i promise i'll come back to your question i found as a consequence icu tends to have a really bimodal student body and to work really well for a bimodal student body um one mode is the mode i was in which is uh i know i have the space bug i know i want to work in this industry i don't know how or where and i want to figure that out um and the other mode are people who are later in their career almost always engineers who have been successful enough as engineers that they've been promoted and now they're executives. And the things that are asked of them at work are now totally unrelated to engineering. <laughs> you know, instead of going and designing or testing something, they are raising money and they're hiring and firing people and they're signing contracts and they're talking to the press and they've proven that they're a smart person, but they don't know those things. 
Uh, and so going to the school is a great way to learn the basics and all those things. For the, for the people like me, um, the analogy I've already, already used, uh, always used, and I'm sure some SEDS members will be rolling their eyes because they've heard me give this talk before, but uh, the analogy that I've always used and found really apt is it, it's sort of like going to a restaurant that is a buffet. Um, chances are, if you know exactly what you want to eat for dinner tonight, you probably shouldn't go to a buffet, right? If you really want sushi, uh, you should be ordering COVID-19 safe sushi from your favorite sushi place. If you're, uh, if you want, you know, vegan tacos, go to the vegan taqueria. But on the other hand, if you're in a new part of the world and you don't know anything about the cuisine and you don't know how to read the menu and you've never heard of any of these things, go to the buffet. Even if it's not the best, go to the buffet in the hotel. I don't care if it's a great one because you get to go and you can, you can take a bite of 20 different dishes and you could say, okay, I never want to have that again, but what was this one? I really like this one. I'm going to go have more of that. I'm going to figure out what its name is. I'm going to Google it. I'm going to figure out, okay, where in this city makes the best one of that. And that's where I'm going for dinner tomorrow. And also I'm going to buy a cookbook because I want to, I want to learn about this thing. Uh, and I think ISU is really powerful in that way. That's what I went there for that, for that experience. What I discovered was kind of that I liked the buffet line, uh, which is, uh, both a comment on my waistline and also a comment on, on this, uh, this sort of puppy dog uh, nature, jack of all trades nature of mine. Um, so I was really gratified in some ways to figure that out about myself. And I feel lucky that I figured it out, you know, when I was 23 or 24, rather than much, much later in my career. But it did leave me wondering, okay, what do I do with that? Who's going to hire me to eat at the buffet? Like, uh, usually companies don't want to hire that. They want to hire a young person who maybe isn't yet a full expert, but who has a, 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 a great foundation in, you know, thermodynamics or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, so uh, it took a while to find a path. Um, for me, you know, the first step I did was consulting because I found that, uh, and I worked at a company that doesn't exist anymore, uh, but I really enjoyed uh, called, uh, called Futron. Um, uh, and I found that when you're consulting, I could take on I could get assigned to uh, a couple different projects and one could have more of a technical focus and one could have more of a business focus and one could have more of a risk management focus or, or whatever else. And so I could be exercising all these different parts of my brain. Uh, then I went to XPRIZE and I discovered that the XPRIZE, the, 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 the process of planning and managing a prize is very much like the buffet line because you go from creating a prize, which is somewhere between doing like a conceptual design review and writing a business plan and doing raising your your angel round of financing or some of that kind of all all wrapped up into one and then you write the rules for a prize which is like writing a technical requirements document and also like writing a legal contract and then you've got to help recruit and deal with teams so that's a little bit of industry relations and then you've got to you know do some educational projects so you're kind of getting to do all these things maybe not every day but certainly over the course of a couple of years you'll exercise all those parts parts of the brain and i i really love that and uh, and was able to uh, hopefully perform pretty well in that environment. And then similarly, that's why I have this title of special projects because yeah, whenever, uh, whenever, um, uh, you know, a new thing comes along, I get to, uh, you know, fake that thing for a little while. Um, and one of my jobs is always to go and either hire or internally find the human being who is much, much better than I am at that particular thing. And then go let them be a, a deep expert in that particular field while I move on to the next one. Yeah, I would definitely say I'm in that boat of really liking a lot of different things. So it is very inspiring and it's a little beacon of hope knowing that I can definitely be very successful doing that. And I know a lot of other students are in the same boat as well. 
good. It's it's a bit of a blessing and a curse, uh, but it definitely has a lot of elements of blessing to it. So uh, I, I think you'll enjoy it. That's awesome to hear. So uh, it looks like we can hop into student questions pretty soon. I want to talk about one more thing before we get there, though, and that is Brooke Owens Fellowship. That's yeah. something I've only ever heard really good things about. And so I want to hear some backstory as to how you got involved in that and how it became so great. Yeah. Um, well, I'm happy you've heard wonderful things about it. It is a, a project that is very, very uh, important to me, very close to my heart. Um, uh, I, so I was just talking about being in graduate school. Um, my graduate school was a pretty small program. There were about 49 of us um, in the program from, I want to say, 27 or 28 different countries. Uh, and, and you get to form some close bonds with your peers. Um, one of my dear friends from that program was uh, a woman named Brooke Owens, who's one of my classmates. Uh, we then went on to become colleagues. We both worked at XPRIZE, uh, doing different roles and in different offices, but we both worked together very closely on a couple things and stayed really, really close friends. After she left XPRIZE, uh, where she had been living and working on the West Coast, she moved out to Washington, D.C., where I was working, um, and we actually became housemates. Uh, lived together. Uh, she was a, a very dear friend of mine, you know, bridesmaid at my wedding and, and everything else. Um, she passed away a couple of years ago at a tragically young age. Um, she was in her mid thirties when she passed away due to breast cancer and left uh, a big, big void in my life and in a lot of other people's lives as well. Uh, despite her youth, she, she'd left an outsized impression, I think in the industry and because of all the incredible aspects of her personality, not only her technical talent in aerospace, but a lot of the other wonderful things about her personality, uh, she had sort of made friends in places where she had no business making friends, uh, either because of her, her job uh, or her youth or, or whatever else. Uh, so when she passed away, a bunch of us were really affected. And um, uh, a, a woman who I'd always looked up to and who I'm now fortunate enough to call a dear friend, uh, Lori Garver, who had been the number two person at NASA for most of the Obama administration was one of these many people who uh, who had been really uh, uh, affected by by Brooks' loss, and um, and she sent out an email to a kajillion people in the space industry. Just said, you know, I really miss Brooke. I really want to do something to honor her memory. I got a couple ideas. Um, who's in? And uh, just about everyone wrote back and said, whatever you do, let me know. I want to support it. Uh, and a couple of us wrote back and said, yeah, I want to help. Uh, I've got ideas too, and, and I'm willing to, uh, to, 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 do, to roll up my sleeves and do a lot of work about this. Uh, so it ended up being uh, Lori Garver uh, and another uh, remarkable uh, woman who I, I won't say I knew all that well. I certainly liked, but, but wasn't all that close with at the time, but now has become a dear, dear personal and family friend uh, named Cassie Lee who at the time was running uh, all of space for Paul Allen's uh, Vulcan, Paul, Paul Allen's sort of venture capital and philanthropic arm. Um, the three of us came together and we created this program called the Brooke Owens Fellowship. And it was uh, a way for us to honor Brooke um, and to work on a cause that was important to all three of us and to Brooke, which was working to increase the diversity in our beloved aerospace industry. Um, and we started at least with a specific focus on gender diversity. Um, you know, this will come as no surprise to you all, but uh, our industry has a hell of a long way to go uh, in gender diversity, in racial diversity, 
Um, and uh, although, uh, you know, racial diversity and the critical and should be self-evident fact that Black Lives Matter is, is very much on the on the tip of everyone's tongue right now, uh, even a couple of years ago, you know, not everyone was was thinking about these issues at all, uh, much less thinking about them in a, in a particularly forward leaning way. And we wanted to kind of do our, our part to, to help that. The other thing we wanted to do, uh, honestly, was to sort of help uh, create a generation of future Brooks, because uh, we knew we were not only going to miss Brooke as a friend, we were going to miss her as a colleague. Uh, and I, I had the the, uh, the fortunate opportunity of being in lots of meetings with Brooke. Sometimes we were on the same side of the table. Sometimes we were on the opposite side of the table. But always, she made the meeting better uh, uh, with her not only her her energy and her humor and her warmth and personality, but her intellect and her her talent and her her sense of of service and wanting to give give back all those kinds of things. And so we said, I know there are lots of incredibly talented women and non-binary students who want into this industry who are not getting in, not because their own fault, but just because that's the way that the system unfortunately is stacked right now. Um, and I know furthermore that there are a lot of them who aren't just brains with legs. They are, they're full human beings who are as committed to this wide range of things as, as Brooke was. How can we create a program to find those people and then to support those people uh, and to give them the shot that they deserve and to give them the tools um, where we think, you know, we think we're finding people who already have everything it takes uh, to succeed except for a chance. So let's both give them a chance and then give them even more tools to succeed more or more quickly or, uh, or, or whatever else. So we created this program uh, a couple of years ago. It, in all honesty, was dreamed up over the course of about 72 hours and a couple feverish emails and phone calls between the three of us. Um, there is nothing that I know that's quite like it. Uh, or at least there wasn't at the time. We now have a, a wonderful spinoff program called the Matthew I. Sackwitz Fellowship Program that, that has a lot of common elements. Um, but what we did was a program that was for uh, gender minorities, underrepresented gender uh, individuals who specifically were undergraduates who were interested in aerospace. Um, we, uh, we developed an application process that hopefully was designed not only to uh, remove bias, but to ask really thoughtful questions that would get these young people thinking about what role they wanted to play in the community and what things both within and external to themselves might have been holding them back from, from achieving that success. Uh, if they got into the program, we would uh, match them through an interview, competitive interview process with a job at one of what we felt were the coolest companies in aviation and space. Uh, a pretty broad range of jobs, so engineering jobs, science jobs, business jobs, policy jobs, because all those things are important to our community. So we'd give them a killer job that paid well, a living wage that anyone could afford to take, no matter what their parents' income was or no matter what their student debt situation was. We would pair them with uh, an incredibly senior executive mentor. Um, and uh, it turns out that a couple years later, our mentor pool includes, I want to say, nine astronauts, uh, a couple former heads of agency, um, uh, at least one self-made billionaire. Like these are just incredible people that I can't believe I get to talk to. And, you know, I'm about to turn 40 uh, and, and, you know, have a mentor who's willing to talk to them for like a couple hours a month for a full year and give them one-on-one -on -one attention. Uh, and then the last thing, which I, I don't know that any of us and certainly not any of the applicants the first year necessarily understood how important this would be, but I would say it's become the most important part of the program, we would give them this family, uh, this cohort of like-minded 
um, women and non-binary students in aerospace who were just as talented and just as passionate as they were. And what we found was, I cannot believe I have to say this in 2020, but we found so many of our students were still the only woman in their class, the only transgender person anyone in the aerospace community had ever met, the only woman in their uh, internship, the only person of color that was in their study group, right? They, they'd been the only for so long, or they'd been one of two. And when you're one of two, everyone assumes that you're going to be best friends and you get paired together all the time. And it doesn't matter whether you like that person or not. You're just obviously, they're the two girls. They'll be, they'll be buddies and lab partners all the time, right? And they had never been put in a position where they could um, be surrounded by uh, people who looked like them and sounded like them. Uh, that was still a context of talking about aerospace. So a lot of them are in a sorority or they're in a, some kind of a women's group or they, uh, a women's studies class or, or something else. So they, they have peer-to-peer uh, -peer support networks uh, in, in, uh, among women or among other non-binary students, but then not to talk about space, right? So they, they had, they'd had to separate this, their life artificially. And when we were able to bring them all together, it sort of takes them all a while to realize to look around and realize what's there. And then they have just formed these really incredible and touching lifelong bonds. Um, and, uh, and from that, we've seen not only, you know, friendships, uh, we've seen like businesses get started. We've seen people totally change their career plans because they are now learning from a, uh, both a really senior mentor and from a peer or a near peer. And those two perspectives are helping again, open their eyes to things that either they'd never realized were possible or that weren't possible not because of any lack on their end, just because there was a door that was getting slammed in their face. They now have a family who's going to go and help them drive that door open uh, and, and give them uh, not a guarantee, but a, a chance to prove themselves and, and to succeed. It's been probably the most fulfilling thing I have done in my career. Uh, even though we're only four years in, um, I've made some lifelong friends. I've learned a ton from these young people, things that I, I never knew. Um, and we've, uh, we've got all these wonderful stories now of, of lives that we've pretty tangibly changed in a, in a short amount of time, which is a hell of a feeling. Yeah, it's amazing to hear about. And it's wonderful that you guys were able to, you know, honor her in this way by developing, like you said, that community and, and kind of helping break down some of the doors. So that's great to hear. Before we let you go, I think we have two student questions that I, I'd want to get through. The first one is about Launcher One. So kind of looking back at the launch last week, do you guys know what you need to do moving forward and what's kind of the final vision for launcher one in terms of launch cadence and like what you want it to be? Yeah, those are both great questions. Let me try and get to both of them. So, uh, so yeah, we had our launch demo, um, on Memorial day. So that's, uh, about two weeks ago as we, uh, as we record this, it was uh, a huge step forward for the company because it was the first time we'd ever attempted a lot of different things. Um, we, uh, we all would have been even more thrilled if the flight had gone a little further than it did, but what it did do was awesome. Um, I, uh, I will say this totally genuinely. It was a party when we, when we had that flight, it was a big, big day for us and people were all smiles. Um, because what we did was we took, like we were talking earlier, what many people considered the single biggest technical risk of the mission. We took what without a doubt are the couple hardest seconds of the flight and we aced them. You know, now that we've had a chance, not only to look at the video, which we had pretty quickly, but to dive through the data. And that was a test, you know, that wasn't a commercial launch. That was a test flight that was intended to go as far as we could get it to go. It was instrumented out the wazoo. So we've got just tons of channels of data to dive through. And as we look through them, what we're finding is through the initial portion of that flight, everything went 
so damn well, I, I, I almost can't believe I'm looking at real data. You know, you, 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 you're used to, as engineers, you're probably used to looking at, you know, Monte Carlo plots or something. You've got this nice big dispersion and you see this line that's going right down the center of everywhere you would have hoped it to go. It's like aced it. And then a little bit into the flight, something went wrong. And it looks like it was only one thing rather than a cascade, but it triggered some other things, and, uh, which resulted in, uh, in, in shutting off uh, um, uh, the, the main stage engine. And, you know, rockets don't perform that well when you shut down their main stage engine. It's surprising. So a lot of other things have to happen. Yeah, surprisingly, exactly. Uh, so we don't yet have exact understanding of what caused that because, you know, as, as often happens, you have a bunch of things that happen in sequence and it takes a while to figure out what's cause and what's effect. And maybe there's more than one cause or, or whatever else. So you gotta, you have to be, you have to not fool yourself. And even if you think you know the answer, 48 hours in, you got to keep looking at it, and keep looking at it, and keep looking at it. And that's what we're doing now. So we don't have all the answers, um, but we've been super encouraged by everything we've seen, both about the good portions of flight and about the failure, and, and even actually what happened after the failure and how things like structures behave when you're using them in ways you never want to use them and never plan to use them. That tells you something about how they're designed and how they're tested and put together. And, uh, and we've had good news all, all across the board there. So we're going to be thorough about that process. We're going to, like we were talking about earlier, not only drink our own Kool-Aid, but bring in some external folks. They're, they're already helping us make sure that we're being as thorough as we want to be um, as, we, as we investigate that. And then we're going to get back up and flying. You know, one thing I'm super grateful for is both because some of the economics of small launch that are common to us and, and some of our peers and competitors, and because uh, we work for a guy named Richard Branson, who, uh, who, who thankfully both um, has some capital and has a long-term vision, uh, you know, it didn't surprise any of us that that flight didn't go, uh, you know, achieve all of our stretch goals because no one's ever does. You know, everybody in this industry knows that the stats on maiden launches and, and they're not pretty. Uh, so one thing I'm super grateful to Richard and to Dan Hart, our CEO for was they had the foresight to like years ago said, don't build one rocket, build a bunch of rockets uh, so that when you do your first flight, whether it goes perfectly or not, you got the next one queued up and ready to go. And as soon as you know what you need to tweak, because even if flight goes well, you'll probably want to tweak something. If it goes poorly, you want to tweak more. Uh, as soon as you figure out which tweak, you can make the tweaking. You don't have to sit around waiting to build something. And we didn't just build the next rocket, we built several other rockets. And the nice part about that is it means we're hardware rich and engineers and especially test engineers, boy, do they ever love being hardware rich, right? Because it means that if I ever wanna, if, if, if you think you might know what caused the issue, but you're not sure, great. I can go pull six units of flight hardware and test the heck out of them and recreate the problem and check the solution and check the alternate solution and do all that and not be doing this in simulation, not be doing this on a scale model, be doing this on, on, on the real thing. Um, it means if we gotta, yeah, if you gotta, if you gotta sacrifice hardware to uh, test deliberately test something to failure, I, cool, we can do it. You know, that, it's it's nice to not even have to hesitate. Uh, every engineer wants to be able to do that. They don't all have the the capacity to be able to do that, and we and we do. So feel feel really really good about that. So we're eager to get back up and fly really soon. I don't know how soon really soon will be yet, um, but we've sort of done as much as we could in advance to make that fast. Um, I am. As you all know already, even from the Courses One conversation, I'm a pretty big space nerd. Um, in addition to my love of space today, I, I, I have a love of space history and also of spreadsheets. So I have a big, I have a big spreadsheet of every rocket that's ever uh, been launched uh, by humans uh, into orbit or attempted to launch into orbit. And I don't have all, all every flight of every rocket, but I've got at least the first couple of flights of every rocket. Uh, and so uh, a while ago, I got curious and I went and I looked 
at what was the historical average for turnaround time between flight one and flight two of the rockets that made it to a second flight. Um, and what I found, I found a bunch of interesting things, but to make a short, a long story, a little shorter, um, I found it was about a year. It's 350 something days is typical turnaround time from flight one to flight two. Uh, and so we've done everything we can, we can to make it a lot shorter than a year. Um, I, it's too soon to say what it'll be or, or even if it'll be, I think it will be, I, I got a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but, uh, uh but we got to go prove it, uh, first. So we're getting ready to do that. Uh, and then the hope is to start flying pretty often. You know, another thing we did, that's a little bit unusual, usually in the launch business, um, for reasons, primarily both of, of politics for government funded programs and just of economics for basically everyone else. When you're designing a new launch vehicle, usually you, you build one of them and then you fly it. And then you build the second one, then you fly that. And then maybe after that one or a couple others, you start building the factory that's going to build lots of these things. We just did all that work in parallel, which cost us more money and slowed us down in front. And now we're, you know, now we're reaping the rewards from that. Uh, because if we want to build more rockets, we build them all ourselves. And the factory is already built and it's already qualified. It's already turned on. We're not just turning on the machine for the first time. We've been using it for a year. We know how to use it. We've earned all the kinks out of it. We've, we've got the people who are trained to use it. And yes, I guess now we have a new wrinkle of COVID-19 and <laughs> you got to make sure you can still use it with all those rules in place. But even that now we've had a couple months of, of practice there. So all those things were, uh, were, were investments that, yeah, might've slowed us down in the short run, but will hopefully speed us up a lot in the long run. And that, that's what we're, that's what we're starting to see now. Awesome. Any last thoughts or advice to said students? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you're said students. If anyone's listening to this who isn't a said student yet, um, go start a SEDS chapter. It's super easy. Uh, the SEDS national leadership and I personally will help you along the way. Uh, I have an open offer to anyone who's listening to this. Uh, I will personally pay your chapter dues for the first two years of the program. If you start a new chapter and tell them you listen to this, this podcast. It's easy to make because the dues are the dues are really cheap. But uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I've been a student before. I know every little bit helps. Uh, so yes, uh, I, I'll say you know the um, the careers of said members in general are great. The careers of said's leaders are even better. The careers of said's chapter founders are like awesome. So uh, if you want to put yourself on a track, go and do that. My other general piece of advice to young people in aerospace right now, apart from uh, be de be decent human beings and. Uh, don't be racist or anything else. Again, I wish that didn't need to be said in 2020, and I'm confident it doesn't to SEDS members, but it's worth saying anyway. My other thing is, I'm going to bet for almost all of you, you are capable of doing a lot more right now than you realize. Um, you are entering the space industry at a very different time than I did, or than your, your professors did, than your bosses did, your, your faculty advisor did. You know, a lot of us entered the industry at a time where you had to pay your dues for a really long time before you got to do the cool stuff. Because that's just the way the world is when space missions happen very rarely and are incredibly expensive. You know, if you're doing one mission a decade and they cost a billion dollars each, I don't care how smart the 23-year-old is, you're not going to give them a meaningful job, right? You're going to give it to someone who's already tried it and failed at it and fixed it five times over. So you give it to a a 60 year old person or a 50 year old person. And those people are wonderful. But what that means is for young people like you all, you got to be sitting in the back room for a long time. And there's, there are wonderful values to apprenticeship. Don't get me wrong. There's wonderful things you can learn there. Um, 
But the fact of the matter is that no longer needs to be the case on every different type of space program. So some people want to be in an apprenticeship for a long time. That's how they learn. That's what they enjoy. And those opportunities still abound. You can find those in lots of different places. But for others of you who are feeling frustrated by that and want to do more sooner, uh, that possibility exists now. And you don't even have to graduate. You, you can start that as a student. You know, I'm seeing SEDS chapters around the country that are building flight hardware now, that are testing real engines now. I'm seeing SED students start businesses now. I'm seeing, you know, SED students go on to leadership roles and nonprofits a year or two after graduating. That is awesome. Uh, and, and generally the thing that holds uh, students back from ha us having more examples like that is that they don't know they can, they've been told they can't, and they don't know enough to ignore that advice uh, yet, or, or just it's, it's never occurred to them. Uh, and so I'd say both to, to the two of you all and to everyone listening, uh, yeah, open the aperture a little bit. Think about what you want to do. Think about the long time scale, if that's your personality, but think about the short time scale as well. Um, go and get your hands dirty right away. Take on big, take on projects that are too big for you. Take on projects that you will fail at because there's no better time in your career to fail at things than right now. And failure is the best teacher any of us, any of us ever have. Uh, and it's, it, it is, it's, it's cheaper and less painful to fail, uh, when you are, uh, at this time in your life that it will ever, ever be again. Uh, and maybe when you retire a long, long time from now, but, but at least cheaper and easier than it's going to be for the next 20, 30, 40 years of your career. So, so get out there, take on, take big bites, scare yourself a little, uh, and do some awesome things. Cause that's going to be good for you. And that's also going to be good for us as a community, because you, you're going to do something that I myself thought was impossible and, and didn't just think that I knew was impossible. I was 100% sure that you were a fool for trying until you go and prove me wrong. Uh, and I'll be really excited and happy to give you a, a COVID-19 appropriate high five or, or whatever uh, at that point, because that'll, that'll be a big deal for, for your career and for our industry. Awesome. I really like that attitude a lot. Well, with that, I want to thank Will for coming on. I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion and we will see you all next episode. Thank you for having me. Thank you.